everyone. Welcome back to Requiem Radio. You have myself, Solo Requiem, and my co-host here, Hazy Dialects. And with us today, we have the pleasure and privilege to have Kyle Meeks here, who is a real estate agent. And he's going to be talking about the nuance of real estate and going into more of the details of what really got him into that role and like answering some questions for us. But more importantly, he's going to elaborate some other things. So, yeah, Hazy, want to introduce yourself real quick? Uh, yeah, actually. How you guys doing? It's Hazy Daleks, uh, your favorite uh, infrequent schizo poster on Twitter accounts who has sensible but sometimes irrational takes about particular subject matters he finds intriguing. You're seeing this all in HD and with our special guest who will tell us about his expertise. Would you like to delve into them now? Yeah, would you like to introduce yourself for us, Kyle? Yeah, hey, uh, my name's Kyle Meeks. I'm a real estate agent in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, I serve as Northern Virginia and uh, Southern Maryland. And interesting, interesting. Um, just for the crowd, um, in terms of introductions, is there anything you do online that's particularly uh, astute, like something that I would say that the crowd can really engage with? Or is um, majority of stuff offline and if there is anything online you want to particularly to know about um, let them know right now I suppose yeah I mean I have like social media like most people do but I wouldn't say that's by any stretch of imagination the the big like the bulk of my business but I have a you know a website you know uh, social media as far as my digital calling card Okay, and we're here now. We're here to talk about economics. And um, some of the specialties of our particular guest here is about finances. He um, has a vast a, a level of knowledge about these sort of subject matters. But in terms of like grounding yourself and the know-how, um, one of the most fascinating things I think most people don't really take into account when they going for like larger goals and setting themselves up financially. What do you think are some basic e-coms know-hows that people don't like know about or either are undervalued by like the common person trying to uh, get into the field you're talking about to like get into real estate yes and, okay um i would think just having the, enough set aside where you can focus on this full time and and not have to to be a part-time agent um, I think, you know, a lot of people approach real estate and think they're, they're just going to get their real estate license, that it's one of these careers that you can really, you can really do, just do part-time. And, and the, the reality is it's a full-time job on top of a full-time job. And especially when you're first getting started, you are doing a lot of work for no money. Uh, you're self-employed and you're, you're everything, you know, you, you pay for your cell phone, your healthcare, all of your marketing expenses. and um, the, the biggest thing that's going to help you be successful is if you're able to do some type of transition where you've set aside enough money where you can kind of ease that burden where you're not uh, so just, quote unquote, you know, desperate for cash where you're, you're, it, it, it clouds your, your judgment call when you're, you're trying to do transactions and you have enough to just sustain yourself until you can actually uh, start generating and, and have, having money come in. Interesting. So for most people, when it comes to 
like basically being part of real estate, you want to have a good financial cushion so you can um, do the job and just absorb, like focus on the idea of just doing it rather than um, trying to ensure whether or not you have enough money for like a month's time or what the time. Like it, 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 it's, it's primarily about the idea that you're just um, ensuring that you have a good cushion for the entire time and ensuring that when you make um, the transition to real estate, it's to ensure that you don't have to worry about the little things. It's 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 mainly and primarily for the focus, primarily for the focuses of ensuring that um, um, real estate can be your it, it can be your all. Like you can give it hundred percent of your time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think being able to come into this, approach it like you would any other full time job, uh, and you're able to to focus on this forty hours a week and not have to worry about how you're going to pay your bills and not have to try to do this part-time while, you, while you're transitioning from another full-time job. Allowing to, to approach this like, like it's a true business, um, but having that financial relief where you're able to, to do that. And so I think that's why it's so important to have um, some type of financial win or, or, or to have some type of uh, financial cushion that you, that you can fall back on while you're you're building your business and, until you can actually start selling real estate to you get your first tra- few transactions. Interesting. And how long? Um, have, go ahead. Yeah, and how long have you been in real estate business? Um, I've been a full time agent for about seven years now. And what price range do you typically work in? Because I know you said you're do DC and what else again? You said New Hampshire. So I'm in uh, DC, uh, Maryland, and Virginia. Okay, and so your price license, range? Usually... Yeah, so licensed in three places. Um, I would say you know the majority of my business is uh, probably around. I don't know. I mean, like average sales, probably like a million and a half. But you know, it, you 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 represent stuff all over all over. It, it's a range. Like I've got a listing right now for eight million dollars, and I have a listing right now for five hundred and forty thousand. Um, I definitely focus on uh, what I do a little bit more of the, the higher higher end market. So uh, the majority of the stuff that I work with is probably over a million and a half, but it it fluctuates. You're kind of all over. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I've spoken to a few other real estate agents before, and there's a common trend where I see where people who are interested in getting to that field, they say they're going to make it big by going to either like Vegas or Miami or any of these like really hot spots, if you will. Would you say that as being a good term or is that like a very high risk, high reward type scenario? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, there's only a couple of markets around the country where you can that actually support these these larger price tags for, for real estate. You know, the majority of, of, of the country is not that. But you go to, to like Los Angeles, San Francisco. New York, Miami, and you've got, you know, homes that are 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars or more. Um, we don't, we're not as flashy of a market in DC. There are definitely homes that are, you know, 10, 20, 30 million um, in, in this market. I would, but I wouldn't say that's just the, the norm like it is in, in uh, New York or, or Miami or Los Angeles. The one thing that sets DC apart from those markets as we are very stable. So um, your question was, would you go to one of the other markets or is it too much of a gamble? 
Um, I think the other markets, like like the Los Angeles, New York, Miami, they they're very successful for, for what's happening in the economy and what's happening in the market. So, meaning uh, the economy's not good, th those markets are going to tank. If interest rates go up, those those markets are going to fill it. A market like DC, we we don't necessarily ride, ride the same trends as as the rest of the country. You know, every, we've got the every, our local economy is anchored to the hill, so everything's attached to the federal government. If 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 the DC market crashes, the entire world has a bigger problem because our local economy is is the federal government. Um, so while we feel trends, you know, ups and downs of the market, it's definitely softened in in DC, Maryland, and Virginia. Um, so I would come to a place like DC if I was trying to make it big. Not only do we have a much higher price point than the rest of the country, uh, we're, we're much more stable. Oh, sounds nice. And you were speaking earlier about the market. Is there any like signs, I guess you could pick out or notice? Like, is it just like either like just pay attention to the news or do you look at like stock market or like what do you look for i guess your go-to to be like oh the market may not do so hot or the market's booming well interest rates are a huge indicator especially for the two million and below market um we're hovering around eight percent interest for a 30 year fixed so definitely that's an indicator of, of how much activity is going to be be there um a lot of people who are currently in the market are priced out. They can no longer afford real estate, especially in the in the lower price points. So I think that's that in the economy. You kind of look at what the economy is doing, the, the job report, um, and and that's an indicator of what's the real estate market going to look like. And the interesting thing that's happened over the last couple of years is we've had continuing interest rates, but still a very strong economy. So. Where we are right now in the market, it's starting to slow down, especially in the everything below two million. I think that market's probably being impacted the most because of interest rates. But anything over two million is just kind of business as usual. Yeah, once you once you reach that price point, the majority of the people who are out looking are typically cash buyers, anyways. They're not really susceptible to what's happening uh, in the economy. It's not really as susceptible as what's happening with interest rates. All right. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense then. Definitely. And you wouldn't say that the real estate as a career would be like, you know, unfeasible if let's say the market isn't doing too hot or is it still like you can make a living? Because I've heard some people who say like, oh, I would be a real estate agent, but, you know, the economy fluctuates too much where it's not worth it. Like, what would you say to those people? Like, would you still recommend like getting into it even if the economy doesn't do too hot or if it does good? Well, no. If anyone approaches it with that attitude, I would, they're not—they're not cut out for this industry. Tell them to go get a, a corporate job or a nine-to-five job where you're working for someone else. Um, normal ups and downs; those are normal trends in any any market. And if you're a good agent, there's opportunity in in a down market or a, a hot market. So I I don't really I think you know the people who get in it when it's easy are the first people to exit when it gets hard. Uh, a true agent, someone who's really good at this job, is is, is going to be able to ride the wave no matter what happens because there's opportunity in in every market. And this is actually a cleansing. You know, we're starting to see people get out of the market right now, or get out of this uh, career field right now. And those were just those were not good agents. Those were people who were uh, they were pr pretty weak at their craft, 
But when interest rates were two and a half percent, it was very easy to make money. And now that you actually have to work to, to get deals closed, which deals are very hard right now, um, it, it, you have you have to do a lot of work to get something over over the finish line. And a lot of people just did never do not have or never developed that skill set. So I don't think people actually is a bad thing. It's a natural cleansing. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Like any market, you know, people just come and go, basically. But I like that mentality where it's like very, basically, you have to be very um, optimistic in this job field. Like if you have any like hints of like pessimism, like, oh, why am I doing this? Then you're not going to like make it big. Like you probably skate by, but you won't go far with the career. Exactly. I suppose it also means that you have to have a certain, certain mind for that type of job. And when it comes to that, what sort of like inclination about the market or things to look for do you think like a person has to have? Like in terms of how they evaluate the market, what do you think is like your best like tools? And what do you think typically for a realtor market, like a, a, a realtor, like what are like some really good qualities for them to have as people? I think the biggest thing is mindset. How are you going to come in and approach this? Because this job is ninety percent rejection. I mean, that that's just the reality of it. You're in a you're in a sales job that you're self employed and you're self generating everything. So so ninety percent of your life is just one big rejection. You have to be able to 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 operate within that ten percent that success and not let that ninety percent break you, because it it, it can be. It's, it can be challenging when you're constantly told no, but that one time that you're told yes, it can it can literally be life changing. You know, you you can you could you could easily make in one cell what most people make in a year. So I think the 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 one key thing to this business it doesn't necessarily matter your background, your education. Um, it doesn't matter your your how you know in, in tune you are to be able to quote unquote predict the market. I think it comes down to your your work ethic and your your mentality. Are you a victim or are you a player? If you're a player, you'll always find success in this. If you're a hustler and you're someone who can get up and keep going and pick yourself up, then this is definitely an industry for you. That makes a lot of sense considering the fact that this is one of the biggest investments that a person can get into. So when people look at how wealthy and how lucrative a job like real estate can be, most people don't, at least I think the people who are coming into it very short-sighted don't seem to realize that this is a job where you're asked, you're, you're going to be engaging people who are going to, or at least at the very least, attempting to make one of the biggest purchases of their lives. Like it's not... Um, it, it, it is far more of investment than just simply a car or a watch or something that you could sell at a um, cart or like ice cream. It's one of those things that like is, is a con serious consideration. So the ratio of people that uh, might drop off or decline or get cold feet at the idea of the purchase seems sensible to me that the range of like no's you might get are going to be at a high percentile. Um, so. At best, I would say that um, one of the biggest qualities you should or ought to have if you're going to be in a business of this nature is that you need resilience, correct? Correct. Absolutely. Well said. Um, with, that being, um, with that being said, um, did you always know you had like a um, proclivity for this or um, did you like one day stumble upon it or was it advised by a friend? Uh, I've always been in sales in some capacity. Um, 
either working for a corporation, you know, doing outside sales, inside sales. Um, so I've always been in, 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 in I've always been into sales. Um, I had a corporate career before this. I was in telecom and, you know, I really loved what I was doing and I really loved the telecom industry and, you know, it was, it was fast paced and fascinating. I was managing outside salespeople. And at the time, I thought it was a lot of money. You know, I was like, and it was, it still is a lot of money. Um, nothing compared to what I make in real estate. But I was working for Sprint and they were going through a lot of mergers and it was just merger after merger. And my position was coming up for elimination because of a restructure. And I was just completely burned out with what I was doing. So I decided to get my real estate license. And it wasn't even that I really decided it. It was a friend who was... Um, a business coach, but really good friend as well. Um, in California, his family owned a real estate uh, coaching company called Buffini and Company, which is one of the largest real estate coaching companies in the in the country. And um, he, you know, known me professionally and personally for many years. And you know, I was thinking of going into like another telecom position. He just he just knew me. He's like, you know what, you'd be really, really, really good in real estate. And I kind of thought he was crazy at first. And I just was like, you know, I don't want to, I don't, there's like no money in that at first. It takes way too long to get started. And he's like, just trust me, you know, you should, you should talk to one of my friends who's a real estate agent in DC, who's very successful. So he made the connection. We talked, we hit it off. So I went and started working with this guy and he taught me everything that I knew. And, you know, it was a, it was the best thing that I had ever done. I mean, I didn't really make any money for a year. You know, it's one of those jobs where you just work, 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 and then nothing, and then it all happens. And so I had to get past that mentally because I was doing pretty good in my corporate career. But I, um, you know, I, I am so grateful that I didn't go back to corporate America. You know, working for myself and, and having the flexibility to make unlimited money. You can make as much money as you want in this. There's no, one, no one's going to cap you. Um, I'm my own boss. I wake up when I want. I do what I want. You know, I don't answer to anyone. It's, 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 I'm so grateful that I, I had someone on my side that could kind of take a look from the outside and say, you know, I think you'd thrive here. And someone who I trusted enough to kind of nudge me in that direction. So that's kind of how I got into it. And you were speaking earlier about you had a friend who helped you through this. Would you say the real estate market as well? is kind of like a buddy buddy system where you're always like someone who like gets you into the door and like teaches you all the know abouts or in another example like do you often like go to like social events to like meet more people or possible like clientele if you will so you're saying to get started in the real estate business is yeah just for your experience yeah like would you say like for i guess real estate it's usually you know almost like a master apprentice type thing at first where you have someone who teaches you or how often do you see people just come in like, you know, by themselves and they just figure it out as they go along? Yeah. It's a really hard industry to get into that just to get into. Yeah. There's just, cause there's no manual. There's no like training course. There's no, it's so incredibly easy to get your real estate license. It's just a test that you take. But the, the thing is the test teaches you nothing about being a real estate agent. It teaches you, you know, laws that you might not necessarily even need to know. It's more that your lender needs to know it or your closing attorney needs to know it. Um, you know, there's ethical things it teaches you, but it doesn't teach you how to be a real estate agent. There's nothing on there about how to get clients, how to manage a transaction, what to do if this happens. Um, I think the way, the fastest way to success in this is 
it, getting a mentor. I have to hundred percent say find a mentor, someone that's in this business that is active and successful in this business that will uh, let you mentor with them and they'll teach you how to do it because there's just too much to know and every transaction's different. I've been doing this for seven years and I just, you still learn new things as they get presented to you, um, meaning that no transaction's the same because no two people are the same, right? Everything, every, every transaction is gonna come with its own challenges and its own um, things that, that you're gonna have to creatively try to figure out. So you could start, I think if you could, you came in to this, um, just having someone to, to see be successful. And like for me, the first year was just seeing someone who was making so much money that was so incredibly successful to, to, to actually, to, to, so I could witness that this is achievable, that this could be done. So just for the support factor in that regard, I think it's worth partnering with someone, but someone who's truly a good agent, who's successful, you know, that's it. I mean, I, I would definitely want to be around them because I, I'd want to know what what are they doing in to to, to get what to get uh, the clients they're getting, and how can I get there faster? Agreed. Would you say for you personally, what would you say that I've heard that people that have different unique skills when they get into the market, there are certain things that make other people stand out from their competitors. What would that be for you? What would you say that you have that makes you stand out from your competition of other agents? Um, I really do a lot of off-market transactions. So I think about 20% of my the transactions that I do are, are homes that are not on the market. And so when people are coming to me, one thing that sets me apart from other agents, especially when, when you're trying to buy a house, is to go out and be able to find a home that's not that's not in the MLS, and so I, th that that would be something that that would uh, set me apart because you know twenty percent of, of the transactions that I do are are typically inventory that just doesn't exist, and I'm finding that by either approaching other or approaching homeowners to see if they want to directly sell their home, um, or just through my network of agents that that I've got in in, in this city. Uh, to try to find stuff that's gonna that they are gonna bring to market in the near future and get it in front of my clients before anyone else. Would you be able to provide an example of a property that was probably your most lucrative sale? Or you mentioned earlier you're dealing with one that was like eight million. Has he ever went anything above that? Have I sold anything above that? No. Oh, um, so good. This is this is gonna be your biggest sale then, correct? Well, as of right now, sure, yeah. Yeah, best of luck for that, definitely. Um, I know there's also a lot of, I guess, things that people don't consider when it comes to real estate. Like, you know, you have to get the inspector. You have to get, you know, a mortgage broker, like all these different, I guess, other professionals to come in and like inspect something. Is that more for like a seller specific market or like a buyer? Or is that both? Like you always need these things um, for properties. Well, it's always going to be the buyer, and you're going to need it really in any market. And so, if you're buying a house, you're either, if you're not paying cash, you're going to need a a, a lender, so a mortgage broker. Um, you need to do your due diligence with with inspections if you're going to buy a house. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to put a home inspection contingency in your offer. You might go in before you make the offer and do what's called a pre-inspection, but you you kind of want to know what you're you're getting in, into. So. 
whatever various inspections you're going to need, the first being uh, a home inspection. And if it's on uh, a, a well or septic tank, you'd want to do inspections on those. If it, ha if it has a pool, you'd want to do a pool inspection. But you just want to make sure you know, you're not buying something that you're not prepared that's going to need a major repair. And again, if it's a quote-unquote seller's market, maybe it's not something that you're, you're putting in a contract, meaning I'm going to do this home inspection after we ratify the contract and I'm going to make this inspection contingent on the sell. Um, but it's something because it's, you know, it's such a hot market, you still want to win that house, you still want to have the information, you do what's called an inspection. So I'm going to come in, do the same inspection, not going to make my contract contingent on it. If everything checks out, I'm going to make the offer. But if we are in uh, more of a buyer's market, then there's no reason to do that up front. If, you're not compete if it's not a competitive situation, I would just load it down with, with every inspection and tell the seller, you know, this is going to be contingent upon um, my home inspection. And I'd also ask the seller for repairs if, if, uh, if it's not a competitive situation, meaning I will buy the house if you fix the HVAC because, you know, we found it's bad in the home inspection. All right. One thing and, yeah, go ahead. Um, one of the things I thought was kind of interesting is that when it comes to just basic jargon, um, like the AP, for instance, or um, sometimes rebate, um, some of this jargon can often go over the common um, head. A layman, in a sense, is often not equipped to typically um, understand the jargon that is often apropos for the uh, avenue that, well, a a realtor gets into to understand how to uh, sell and maximize the property that they're um, getting to the market. When it comes to um, when it comes to these um, expertise and these talents that um, they usually have, what do you think um, really seals the deal more often than not? Is it usually that sort of knowledge, or is it um, a level of charisma that can really uh, do uh, a good job of understanding how to uh, entice and invite the person to understand what type of deal they're getting? Uh, so I just want to make sure I understand the question. Is it, is it how are you in, like, anticipate? Uh... Are, you, are, you, are you usually doing this? My apologies. I'm typically asking in terms of, like, um, Maybe this would probably be a better question. When it comes to people that you're selling to, are you usually um, leveraging just um, the interaction in of itself, or are you doing a balancing act of like their knowledge? Like, are you selling them based off of the knowledge, or is it more like a charisma thing when they encounter us? Like, is it just energy, or that's what I'm asking? I was just interested. In. Sure, I think it's two different aspects or two different approaches. If it's um, who you're representing the transaction, mm -hmm. if you're you're representing the buyer, you know, what, what I do is get to know the buyer, you know, what, what is going to inspire them to write the check every month to get them into, to this house. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I don't just go and put them in front of properties and try to quote unquote sell them. I try to find exact, I try to find exactly what they're looking for and let the house really do the talking for me. Right. Because you've told mm -hmm. me you want a big backyard and open concept on a quiet street. Um, I'm going to find that and get you in into the home, and it's more just you can kind of see that this is they're having the emotional reaction to the house. So in that regard, I think it's more just being intuitive enough to listen to actually what the buyer is telling you they want, and then finding the 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 right home. 
um, if you're working for the seller and your job is to market the property, it's it's a little bit different because you're not just looking for one buyer. You're In that regard, you know, presentation is, is everything. And uh, what you want to do is kind of scale things back and scale things down. Uh, that's going to, and, and so you can capture a larger audience. And so what I mean by that is like if someone has a lot of wallpaper in their house or a bunch of bold colors, you know, I'd come in and paint things white because white's going to resonate with 98% of people. Take down all the personal effects so I don't want to see your dog photos or, or your family portraits. Declutter it. You know, I want to make this like a, a somewhat of a blank space. I want stuff in yeah. it, but not so much stuff where I can't picture myself in it. And the goal there is to try to um, elicit as many responses from the market and get as many showings as possible and hopefully let it go into multiple offers. Basically, do what you can when it comes to being a seller. Do as much as you can to maximize the amount of people um, that can see themselves in a home, and uh, 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 like make it um, maximize the um, by the the way to entice somebody in this regard will be to maximize the amount of people that could envision themselves in a particular home, which is as you said before, creating a blank slate. While as in the other um, situation, you would want to. Um, tailor the house in such a regard where they can forgo to some degree how the pricing is if they feel as though this is like the ideal home in a, in a, and, and if people feel as though they found their ideal home there's a, a less of a likelihood that they're going to try to look somewhere else if they feel like this is the home that they could pitch themselves in for years on end uh, yeah I think that you know once you've lined someone up with what they what they want then the emotions and there's an emotional response and you know then that that's when you know a deal's made that's when 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 it's a, a situation that everyone everyone feels like they've won in you know the seller feels like they've won the buyer feels like they've won everyone has came together and and, and in a way where everyone's happy now yeah, um, yeah go ahead AZ. um i was just interested since i see that you're you're on the precipice of probably one of your biggest sales i want to congratulate you on that but um, if you could take us to your first sale, what were some vital lessons um, leading up to that that you found out that are still something that you, um, like, what were some valuable lessons that you learned from that situation? Um, really communication. You know, I think in the first sale, just assuming that the client that I was working with knew everything about the contract and knew everything about the sales pr process because, you know, he, he was, in D.C., there's a lot of, you know, highly functioning professionals, a lot of just well-polished people in, in this city, highly educated. Uh, my client was a really, you know, prestigious attorney, and I just assumed that he, uh, he completely understood everything about the sales contract, and I didn't go into enough detail. And so what I took away from that was you need to just, my job is to, to hold someone's hand and, and go through every, every bit of what they're signing you know, interpret it for them. Don't don't just leave it for them to to read on their own or or assume they understand it. And just be overly diligent in in the way I communicate. So there's no step of the process. I mean, the home inspection, the the closing, just whatever we're doing that that they're kind of having to ask, what are we doing or what is this? So so communications number one. 
And for that as well, I wanted to go into asking you, like, if you could explain things more of, like, the terms and conditions of contracts and other legal documents. So how do you handle negotiations and counteroffers would be, like, my first question about that. Well, again, every every deal is different. You know, um, if we are, if it's a multiple offer situation, it's going to, it's going to affect how you write the contract and how, how you um make the offer and handle the negotiations if you're the only person at the table then again the the contract is going to be um it's you're going to write it differently and your in your strategy to to win the house is going to be differently um did that answer your question is that what we're talking about yeah i was just that and i was going to lead it up with you know what happens if the deal falls through or you know, what are the penalties or implications that comes with that? I know you said earlier to begin the podcast that like, hey, this is a job where there's lots of um, rejection, but you got to push through and look at the 10% of the like success you make. Would you want to like expand more on that? Or was that sums it up pretty well? Well, just to your question, what happens when the deal falls through? Um, I don't think you need to ever look at it as what I'm losing as the agent. As long as you've maintained the relationship, meaning you still have the client. That's all that matters. So there's been plenty of situations where I've, you know, got into a contract and for whatever various reasons, my client has decided to void the contract. So there goes your commission, poof, right in front of your face, 30, 40, whatever, you know, $60,000. And if you look at your clients like a commission, then you're, you're not, you're always going to lose because people can feel when, when you actually care about them and you're actually trying to help them get to a next, the next phase in their life, the next space in their life, or if you're looking at them as, as, your, as their meal ticket. And you, when you look at someone like a meal ticket and treat them as a transaction, there's a good chance that they're not, they're not going to come back to you in the future uh, when they get ready to sell that house. Or maybe that transaction they voided, they, just, they, they won't come back to you to use you for, to, to go and actually find the house they're going to buy. Uh, let's say that they do, but they still have this you know, feeling of just you're a number to them. They're not going to use you to sell the house. They're not going to refer their friends and family to you. So um, I think being able to to take yourself and what's in it for me out of the situation is probably the biggest thing because if you take care of your client, you will always be taken care of. But if you take care of yourself first, it's going to be a short-lived career. You're constantly you know, hunting and gathering business. Interesting you said that. Um, if I were to draw something I believe to be a bit analogous to what you're saying here, um, it's better to focus on building a rapport than to focus on building a purchase. Because a purchase can be like for, like it could be very financially affluent for you to do so, but ultimately that's not building you over like connections. And connections in that regard can lead to a domino effect of like more business opportunities than that one like moment in time when you sold that property. Similarly, um, I know it, in terms of magnitude, these aren't the same, but if we were to think about like barbershops to some regard, they're not just giving you a haircut. They're trying to make sure that you're well treated for, you're getting what you want at the end of the day, you feel respected in the time, and you feel as though they took the time to understand you as a client so you consistently come back rather than just 
paying your money for the haircut that might not have been what you wanted because they didn't communicate long enough with you and you don't feel like they value you as a customer. And so you might spend your time there that one day, but you might leave and never come back. It's better to ensure that they feel as though you care about the the investment it is to make such a purchase as much as they do. And so that will invigorate them to even inform other people about your expertise. Yeah, so like it's a relationship business. And um, when people feel like you truly care about them and uh, they're more out to call you when they need something, refer their friends and their family when they feel like you know, they're, they're, they're going to be taken care of and not just a means to an end. Okay, so that makes more sense. So you don't really approach it in the sense of being like, you know, you're asking yourself, this property is expensive. Can I afford it? The real question is like, can you not afford it type thing? You're actually trying to like be like, no, I'm here to help you. So you could have greater success in branching out like maybe that person's cousin or their grandparents or siblings well, no. or friends. They'd be like, it's, hey, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm saying I don't look at the person as a dollar amount. So it's like you have a million dollar budget well a lot of agents are going to look at you as okay you're worth thirty thousand dollars or you're you know you've got two million dollars so you're going to make me sixty thousand at the end it was when you close take yourself and how much you're making out of the equation do a good job for the person you're working for meaning you have a two million dollar budget and you want a house in northwest you know with historic charm in the backyard that's walkable uh to dupont circle you know, with a roof deck, like you find the house that's going to meet the person then, and, 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 and look out for your, your person, like look out and, 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 and cater to their needs and don't just look at them as a paycheck. So going back to what we were saying, like we found the per we found the house we thought for the client, but they decided to avoid it because it needs an HVAC or something, you know, something's wrong with it that they don't want to take on the repairs. Well, don't look at your. Don't look at them as okay. Well, that, now my sixty thousand just went out the door. Look at them as I still look at it as I still have this relationship. This is still my client. Eventually, they're going to buy something, and and they're still gonna, they're still working with me. So when you take yourself out of the what you lost out of that and refocus, feel that they're gonna feel that, and it's gonna it's gonna pay off for you in the long run. That's actually a very optimistic look for it as well, because I know there's a lot of like stereotypes and jokes of like real estate, especially in places like, you know, Miami, I said earlier, being very Wolf of Wall Street-esque, where it's like cutthroat looking at people's numbers. But it's good to hear that there's actually good agents out there that consider you for you being the person, like what's best for you and what can I do to help you the most. So I think that's a really good, admirable trait to have, definitely. I think narratively, it's enticing to believe people in such a regard, or at least they operate in such a regard. Like, um, for example, um, in terms of medical field, some people might look at doctors as being vultures, financial, like working for the big suits, companies at large. But in actuality, they're just doing what they can in the confines of um, not only legality, like what can be done in terms of malpractice but just in terms of like what can be afforded for you and to ensure that and there is no malice in doing and operating that way but there can be um i would say a disdain for those people who work in those places without taking into account the larger like scope of things early 90s tv shows and movies did the exact same thing well like people who work in like regular jobs like realtor jobs 
not even religious adjust, but like work as cashiers. They would typically depict them as like um like immature kids who didn't have any word experience. This sort of like obnoxiousness or entitlement to the world, that sort of thing, you know. But yeah, I think that like as a in a real sense, while media does typically um, like to betray people in this manner of like not caring and even uh, family guys some, to some regard kind of mocks people in this way it just doesn't in terms of practicality of how you would work work your business it just wouldn't be feasible like people would um, would never want to work with you if you would it was a hungry tycoon shark in this manner just trying to sell people the worst houses at some point you would get a reputation for some people um in the car industry's version of lemons, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, your reputation is everything in this business. And there are definitely people who you see their names on uh, listings, and you don't want to work with them. Uh, there are developers in town that you know you see their names. You don't bring your clients to their properties because they've got such bad reputations. Um, the same with agents. You just you see their names on properties. You know that they don't. They're not that ethical. You don't want to uh, to bring your your clients to them. Um, and it's the same thing. Like people, people. If once you start doing things that are not unethical or not having other people's best interests at heart, um, you know, clients talk, and then there's agents that certain people will just completely avoid. So, so it's always good to do the right thing in this industry or any industry. And honestly, most of that slander we do see is just people hating on real estate agent success, I'd say, because, you know, they don't know how to chase that back. <laughs> Kidding, it just had to drop a joke in there. Like, you're just hating <laughs> on these guys. Yeah. They're like, yeah, I don't like them, so I'm going to try to bring them down because they're actually working hard and making money. <laughs> and it's like, well, tough luck. Like, you work hard, you get money. You don't work hard, you don't make money. Actually, yeah, what you just said there was kind of fascinating because to some regard, people look at um how financially lucrative a job like real estate is but they don't take into how sometimes dubious it can be like um and when i mean dubious i'm just saying like um there's a lack of certainty while as i can work my job as i do i am a i'm working with a guarantee to a, a financial note that will be placed on my my work value if i work a particular time and a particular amount of hours i am guaranteed a, a salary Whereas a uh, realtor um, is kind of uh, gambling with their time, their investment, and whatever um, property they're looking at, um, they're not guaranteed a, 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 um, a financial um, recovery, even if they put in, they were diligent, they took the time to do it. And I think that um, to be in that field, not only takes a level of diligence to be like aware of like how to allocate your finances to potentially sell a deal or to work on the next deal. Um, it's, I think it's also um, very mentally straining in a way that most people don't have to worry about. You see, where I'm going with this is just to speak about bosses in a sense. And he, um, you are your own boss in that regard. But when typically um, businesses, whether that be your McDonald's, your casino workers, or any sort of business, there is a easy and reflexive nature to criticize um the upper end of the echelon of like how the business functions it is easy to say our business or our job is uh our management is incompetent i've had people say um air similar grievances um when it comes to the productivity uh, and, and the shipment area that i work at but then um 
like for example, there are people at my job who don't work the same amount of productivity numbers at our job, and they're saying, "Oh, you should just give them more money for because you know that would incentivize them to work harder." But then I ask them questions like, "Did he, are they aware of how much the drivers get paid? Are they aware of how much like mistakes cost to recoup?" Um, or how much of a net negative it is when people don't use all the saran wrap. Things of that nature are things they have to account for. And for my brief time period of transitioning from um, a job that was more uh, in fast food places to being in uh, a place that deals with shipping in large areas, counting, um, one of the things I thought was just um, mentally strenuous and um, tiresome was having to account for almost all the product that had been used in that day and doing that on a regular basis. And knowing that if there was a miscount or any of these things, or if the ship wasn't working as a well-oiled machine, the fault of whatever happens in that day falls on you. And while people are easy to criticize uh, management or bosses, they don't want to have that level of responsibility. And so when we look at realtors who not only are operating in this like field, they also have to be the brunt of all the responsibilities. They have no person they can lean on and go, it's all their fault, or they can just like um, push responsibilities for their shortcomings upon. So there's, it's a um, far more arduous in that confine at the very least. Okay, I'm not sure I understand the question. But it was not a question. I was just, okay. I was just speak. I was just building off of what he was talking about when he's, he oh, was just okay. speaking about how, like, you know, people perceive being a realtor as being easy. Oh yeah, and yeah I was yeah, just yeah. building off of that, saying like, yeah, well, most of these people are people who don't work like as a manager or the boss of the job because that's a level of responsibility that also comes with a job that they won't notice. And I think being a manager has a parallel to being like a realtor because not only are you the worker, you're also the manager in that regard. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, yeah. Sorry, if I. <laughs> but um, in terms of questions, um, um, was there ever a time, um, in terms of like just starting off, um, in terms of starting off and doing the job, was it ever like, um. Like really concerning. Like, would would you ever in a state? Because uh, I can't imagine. To me personally, it seems a bit anxiety inducing to have that much responsibility to 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 work and operate everything. But at the same time, um, was it like was it more liberating to like be that position, or was it like um, the at least in terms of the first initial months, was it more exhilarating, or was it more anxiety inducing to be a boss in that regard? Um. Well, the first couple of months, you're just like, oh, my God, what am I doing? Because there was, like, no work to do. You're just trying to make things happen. So um, I don't really know if you're, like, thinking about not or being your own boss. I think it's more like, how do I, how do I even get started, right? Like, it's, that's, the, like, the beginning is just you're trying to make things happen out of thin air. So especially the first year i think the first year is so incredibly hard in real estate not not for everyone but i think it's really uncommon not to make a sale for your first year while you're building building up getting getting your name out there letting people know that you've done a career change you're networking you're trying to build a database you're working open houses trying to meet buyers um so 
while there's no one telling you what to do, I think there's probably a natural anxiety. You're looking at the, your bank account and saying, how long can I make it without selling something? You know, everyone's story is going to be different on that. Is it, a, is it six months? Is it three months? Is it 12 months? Um, but with that clock, clock you know, click, uh, counting down, you're trying to do everything that you can um, to, to get things started. But I think once you're up and started and like you're, 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 you know, have a little bit of pressure off, I think knowing that you don't have to, you're not answering to anyone anymore, you don't have to be anywhere at a certain time, you know, I think it is very liberating. Um, that um, said, so I understand that. Um, one quick question, um, what, um, when it comes to just doing a job, what's a um, misconception that you often encounter when people um, hear about your job? that real estate agents don't work that's easy and the reality is it's 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 pretty hard i mean it's like it's like i don't it's not rocket science so it's like a very easy hard job but it's it's not easy at all you know you're it's uh and i think the misconception is is that anyone can do this that it's easy and that you know we don't really work and we make a ton of money the only people who make a ton of money are people who do a ton of work and so that that's just the reality of it and it's hard work you're dealing with you're dealing with um, people purchasing their largest financial decision they've ever made and their most emotional finance and one of the things that invokes so much emotion. So real estate is so personal and so emotional and it's arguably the largest financial decision anyone's going to make. So a lot of stuff that just seems like it would make sense doesn't make sense. And you're wearing so many hats and solving so many problems to, to get deals over the finish line, to get to make it uh, something that makes everyone happy, it makes the seller happy, it makes the buyer happy. Um, so that's just one part of it. And then the other part that makes it hard is like, where do you get your business from? How do you get started in this industry, right? Um, and there's multiple, and there's many different ways, but like it's building a book of business. And then once you have that, getting people to, to, from point A to point B. So it's an incredible amount of work. Uh, it's different than, than other jobs, but the misconception is, is that anyone can do it. They can't. I would argue that anyone can get their real estate license because getting your real estate license is incredibly easy, but doing the job and getting your license are two very different things. So you can go get your license, sure, but be, be, actually be a real estate agent. Um, I think that I think the statistic is that 98%, there's, only, there's, there's a 2% success rate after 12 months, meaning you can go get your real estate license because it's easy, but 98% of the people who go and get their real estate license, only 2% are still working in the industry 12 months later. So that tells you anything about how hard it is. And I was reading an interesting statistic on that too for um, post-purchasing support. You actually have your clients being around 30% more likely to recommend you to someone if you were like, let's say, offers them like resources for settling into your home. Um, would you agree with that or would you say like that's a pretty pivotal thing because i remember earlier you said it's more of a relationship and less of like a number for your clients what was the statistic that if you do what they'll they'll refer you what was the it's around 30 percent for post-purchase support so basically offering anything like recommending them contractors or service providers for home maintenance or repair or basically helping along the way if like anything is like post finalized just checking in being like hey how are you settling yeah. in here's some resources would you recommend that for other people trying to be agents or what's your opinion on that 
if you want to do transactions with those people in the future and you want them to be a referral source, then you continue to stay in communication with them. You know, you follow up on anniversaries, you follow up on birthdays, you follow up on home purchase anniversaries, you follow up on any bit of information you can get about the person as a point of contact, a reason to, 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 to call them, to stay in touch with them. Because people forget you. You could be the best agent in the world, but they forgot if you don't, they don't hear from you for two years, except for some mass mailer that you're sending out to your database. They're not going to call, they're not going to use you when they get ready to sell their house in five years or two years because they're going to forget about you. Everyone knows like 12 real estate agents. And the only way to, 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 to distinguish yourself from every other agent is, is what I call staying in flow with them. And what that means is there is complete service after the sell. You know, you 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 could you should continue to stay in touch, and you find different reasons to stay in touch. But if you don't stay in flow with your people, they know twelve other people that are that that are real estate agents, and someone is going to be in regular contact with them because that they either you know play their children children play together. They go to the same school. They're they're you know husbands. Best friends just got their real estate. Like, there's some there's reason that's going to put another agent in front of them. So they're going to think of that other person when they get ready to, to sell their home or buy a new home if you don't make it a point to stay in contact with them. So to answer your question, yes, that's, the, that's one of the biggest pieces to um, referrals and repeat business. I know you said earlier as well that you're your own man, basically your own business. You do your own thing. Would you recommend at all, or I don't know if you already have this, but have like your own, I guess, office area where people could come and like meet you, walk in, or is it more about you going and doing your day to day thing, and then you'll get a call, or you'll schedule time for you to like be at home on a computer? Like, what would you think about that? Having like a physical location where customers could walk or clients could walk through and like have a conference area to speak with you with? Would you so, see as being important or not really? Yeah, for sure. I think that. First of all, if you're aligning with a broker, a reputable broker, they should have some type of storefront. Um, it's very important because if you're with some no-name brokerage that's doing virtual, you're not at a good brokerage and you're probably not going to sell a lot of real estate. Um, but if you're with a reputable broker who's going to have uh, a storefront, then they should provide you with office space. And like, it's really easy to work at home um, because you know, you're self-employed. But it's more productive to go into your office. If you're obviously on a listing appointment, you're going to go to a client's house. But if you're conducting a buyer meeting, you want them to come into your office. You can sit down and, you know, you can um, that's, that's, interview them, set up a home search, find out if, they're a good, if you are a good fit for each other. But just going into the office in general, I think it makes you more productive. You know, if you run your business like a business, you should make money like a business. But sleeping all day, staying at home all the time, it's it's a lot easier to get distracted. So I would go in the office and absolutely have a space where I can have uh, customers come or clients come into the office when need be. And for the brokerage as well, the only big one I know of is Berkshire Hathaway. What are some other big like heavy hitters in the business? Well, I think it depends on what you're looking for. Like I'm with Sotheby's. You know, if you want to be in a luxury brokerage, there's we are the luxury brokerage. You know, Sotheby's is selling the most precious things in the world since the 1700s. Um, and we've been selling the most precious homes in the world since the 70s. So um, there's a lot of, you know, bigger brokerages in town, but it depends on, I guess, what your market is and, and what you want to aspire to for your career. Um, if you're just wanting 
I won't speak about, I mean, I just probably won't speak about other brokerages and what they have to offer. I mean, I know what, what we have to offer and what I've looked for my career is to stay in the luxury market and there's no one who I can align better with than, than a brokerage like Sotheby's. And how long have you been with them? Seven years. Oh, so from the beginning. Nice. You didn't even move around. That sounds good. So you're definitely probably a very valuable employee there, I'd assume. But, um... What is, if you could go into in more detail, what is like luxury brokerage or luxury real estate compared to, I guess, you know, regular or for like the layman who just hears that, like, is that more like you dealing with like more expensive properties or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's two ways to look at luxury. Luxury is not necessarily a price point. If you're talking about being a luxury agent, um, I think it's more about creating, you know, what you create for your clients what do you bring to the table so um it's more of an experience so it's not necessarily from an agent standpoint if you're a luxury agent maybe it's the experience that you create for your client maybe they're not buying a luxury home now and they will be in the future but it's really you know i don't want it you're you're just a full service agent you're going to do you're going to take care of everything for your client from point a to point b and 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 you know be that professional that they've hired to do this um if we're talking about luxury the luxury real estate market and i think it's that definition is going to vary depending on where you live um i think in a place like washington dc i would i would equate that to probably anything like two million dollars or higher maybe slightly less than that maybe it's like 1.8 or higher um because it's it's just it's it it really things after two million start to change in this market i think the homes change and the clients change so i it's probably safer to say maybe two million plus is like quote unquote the luxury market all right that makes a lot more sense hey z do you have any other questions you want to ask along the lines as, as well um more i was just thinking um really just on, the, on the idea of um Real estate, and I thought it was interesting that like so you work for an agency, and um, well, in terms of working with an agency, how's that different from being independent? Like, um, what do you think um, in terms of like working with association? Obviously, I would assume that some might provide connections, but um, with your team that you w- work with, um, what is um, some of the benefits that you could um, inform the audience at large about? Um. So, what are some of the advantages of? Let me just rephrase. It. So, are you talking about like what are some of the advantages of working at like where I'm at? Yes. Um. Okay. So, for especially, well, for Sotheby's in general, I mean, we are, we've got, uh, we do billions of sell dollars in sales annually. We've got the top producing agents in the world that work for our firm. Um, our brand recognition is is, is one of the top luxury brands in the world so the recognition's there uh we've got the affiliation with the auction house so the most precious items in the world are auctioned uh at our auction house uh we so we so we're able to bring with our high 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 end and high net worth clients who need assistance with auctioning items in their home we're able to facilitate that uh for them or help them with that through through the auction house uh we're the only real estate firm that's penetrated the Chinese firewall. So we've got a lot of international buyers because they're using Sotheby's website really to get here. Um, if you look on a brokerage level, typically Sotheby's is going to have fewer agents in every single city 
that are selling more real estate, but they're but they're but they're selling more real estate. So what that means in a city like Washington D.C., I think we've only got it's like three hundred agents, three hundred and fifty agents that sell, and like a hundred licensed assistants. So we're by we're very small brokerage if you compare us to someone like Caldwell Banker or Compass that literally have thousands of agents. But what that means is, you know, we did five billion last year between what four hundred people, three hundred and fifty people. Means everyone who's working at our agency is making money. They're all very polished agents. They're all not just agents that are hanging their their license somewhere. They're accomplished agents that are doing big numbers. So that's what that's what we bring to the table. You know, that's what a brokerage like Sotheby's is. You know, you're getting a professional, you're getting a top notch real estate agent, and you're getting a brand that is luxury. Yeah, so it definitely sounds like a proof of concept in a sense that like there's a quality that can be expected when working with this agency and also an access, an access to um, certain properties that you normally wouldn't find just um, being on the market. So, yeah, um, thank you. Um, but, um, can you also... Go um, sorry, Hazy, go ahead. Okay, no, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. Could you also elaborate more? You said you had international buyers. Is there any extra complications or strings attached to that compared to someone who's like from the United States? Yeah. Like, let's say you're working. Yeah. Or could you go into that, please? Yeah. I mean, it's going to be harder to get any type of lending um, from an inter- for an inter- international buyer. Um, it depends. You know, so a lot of those are cash. Or if they're not, they're typically paying higher interest rates and having to put down a lot more money uh, because they're not, uh, in, you know, American citizens. So I'd say, you know, those are probably some of the more challenges that come along with it. But a lot of these buyers, it, that doesn't even matter. They're coming over here with cash and ready to go. All right. That sounds interesting. Um, do you ever look into, I guess more like community or like local like what's going on in a certain area like what infrastructure is coming up what new projects are happening whether i'd be like hey there's a new local school to open there's a new hospital or rec center or shopping centers like are these things that you kind of scope out to see like this is going to increase the value of a property uh sure yeah i mean we've got you look at like where developers are developing and what you know where where they're going to put in uh, new commercial spaces, and, and if it's going to be a mixed-use space that's going to accompany residential, or what corporations are relocating. Um, for example, uh, uh, Amazon opened up one of their headquarters in Crystal City, in, uh, Virginia, which is right across the river from Georgetown uh, in D.C. And so, like, of course, when that happened, you know that 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 was a big thing for our, our especially Crystal City, which has been historically just a kind of a dead real estate, not dead real estate market, but just not like one of the hotter real estate markets. Um, just when that happened, you know, a lot of people theoretically started buying up properties in anticipation of what that's going to mean uh, in the future. And we still have not felt the Amazon effect. Like it's still happening. It's still rolling out. I don't think it's fully going to be felt for, you know, at least another five years. But if something like that, you know, you it's, someone like Amazon comes in and it's retailers and, um, uh, commercial spaces to follow, and it's only just boosting home prices. What would you say brings down home prices? Because I've heard that, like, let's say you have already an established suburban area, and then later down the road they want to build a bunch of condos across the street, like you know, 
very like cheaper infrastructure is it sort of like you know the cheaper the area devalues the properties around it or vice versa the more expensive properties being built how does that work um yeah i mean i think you could probably argue that if you're building uh maybe homes that are not as nice that that could that could absolutely um affect you know property values in the neighborhood uh, things like crime absolutely affect property value. Um, I think if you're looking at like like maybe um, typically like I don't know. I mean, you're not gonna like payday loan places like you know lower income establishments like that. I don't necessarily know if that affects property value. I think they more or less target areas where where those businesses would take off. So maybe that's a bad example. But I would say definitely crime, you know, like local city, local government policies on, on different crime um, can absolutely impact real estate value. And um, if you were to build, you know, houses that weren't as nice or, or in a nicer neighborhood, that could absolutely affect it as well. That reminds me, you're mentioning policies and stuff. What do you think is like causing the phenomenon where we're seeing a lot of people from California have a mass exodus and moving to places like Texas? Is it for land or is it just like taxes in the California area? What do you think is causing a lot of this? Uh, for leaving California? Yeah, specifically people who are like, I'm done with California, I'm leaving, I'm going to buy some property in like Texas and like live in Texas. Like, it's an unusual phenomenon where they're having a much larger exodus where people are now leaving at a much higher rate than people are coming in. I'm just curious your opinion on that. Well, I think it comes down to like cost of living and uh, quality of lifestyle. And, you know, somewhere like California, for example, it's one of the most beautiful places in the country. It's not really a place for middle class. Like, you have to just have so much money to live there. Uh, their taxes are so incredibly high. You're going to somewhere like Texas that only has a federal income tax. So, so automatically, just by moving, you've got you've eliminated the state income tax, and your cost of living is significantly less than it is. So, so, so that same salary that someone's trying to make in Southern California is all of a sudden they're, you know, they've got a, a, a huge lifestyle bump by going somewhere like Texas. Yeah, like a dramatic increase, if you will, because you're going from somewhere where you're making a lot of money, but to that area, it's not a lot of money. It's like either middle wage worker like below middle wage worker and then you go somewhere in texas and now you're like upper middle class if you will exactly exactly and if i'm not sure how much how familiar are you with the 2008 stock market crash or the market crash uh yeah definitely would you be able to like elaborate like because i know it had something to do with houses but i never really fully understood the concept like someone like was saying like people were like buying houses or could you give us like a breakdown or a walkthrough from your perspective of like what was the 2008 recession? Yeah, so a lot of people are kind of trying to compare or make the same conclusion to what could be potentially happening in the market now with um, what people are saying there could happen in you know, 2023, 2024. And what happened in, um, in 20, or 2008 was we had a subprime lending issue. And so what that meant is that basically anyone could walk in with very, very to no little verification and 
and get a loan pretty much 100% to value for, for the house. So I'm going to put zero down. I'm going to sign and drive, basically. Sign this paper and, and get the keys. Um, what that allowed is a bunch of, quote-unquote, subprime borrowers to purchase homes they did not qualify for. And not just purchase one home, purchased multiple homes on adjustable rate mortgages. And adjustable rate mortgages, um, what that is, is me, it's exactly like it sounds. You're, you're given a rate, and as soon as interest uh, changes, it goes up, then, then your, your rate adjusts based on, on the current interest rate and your payment therefore adjusts. And so you had a bunch of people who had purchased a bunch of homes, multiple homes in many situations, with no money down. So I mean, they had zero equity out of their, zero, zero money out of their pocket, no equity in the home on adjustable rate mortgages. And the minute that the, those interest, those, uh, those payments adjusted, they could not afford the payments. So what they did is they just walked away from the properties and caused mass foreclosures. So, so many homes just went into, you know, sweeping foreclosure around the country. Um, and that was easy for people to walk away because they had no upfront money and they had no skin in the game, no, no money. And um, they're also letting people with very, very, very to no, like little to no credit buy houses. And so today, all that's been eliminated. Lending's much tighter. There's no... There's really no subprime borrowers. Everyone has to be credit worthy and they have to have some type of down payment and money in the house. So, so while the market has gone crazy the last couple of years, like it also went crazy in you know, the years leading up to 2008 because of how of these lending policies. So our, our market has gone crazy too because of low interest rates, but that it, it, you still had to, be credit, you had to be credit worthy in order to take on the loan in recent years. And you still had to put down between, depending on the property value, between three and 20%, or just what the property was and the value of the property, between three and 20%. So everyone getting these loans are credit qualified and have money in, our, in the property. So what's happening now is not a, it's not a subprime issue like happened in 2008. So, the, so you know, the backbone of our, our housing market is still very strong. While prices are inflated, they're justifiably inflated. And so it's, there's no one walking away from these. Would you say like, yeah, that makes sense. Would you say, I guess, more government intervention would cause more of these issues or prevent them? Because I know you hear people talk about, you know, by Biden giving out the checks during COVID that they caused pretty bad inflation that would later have more detrimental effects down the road where we're not feeling it now. But <clears throat> excuse me, it's going to be happening later. Would you see that like ever occurring or do you think it's going to balance itself out? Uh, I don't think we're going to have any type of housing mass decrease in, in housing costs. I just, I just don't think it's going to happen. I mean, maybe in certain markets like South Florida that went up, you know, a hundred, 200%, there'll probably be corrections in certain markets around the country, but I don't think we're going to see like major reduction in, in, in home prices because of the inflation. I think we're going to see home sales drastically slow as as the government is, you know, enacting, enacting these policies to uh, cool the economy, you know, with, and, and, and slow inflation. And you'll probably see in certain markets, like I just said, some, maybe some leveling out on housing costs. But overall, if you look at the numbers across the United States, there's still inventory, lower inventory issues, meaning there's not enough houses for people. And there's not, there, everyone has equity in their homes. So, 
it's not and, and people are locked into historically low mortgages so it's exacerbating the inventory issue so i don't think that anything that the government's going to do right now is really going to it's really going to bring down home prices i think it's, it's just going to slow the market That makes more sense. And you were mentioning Florida earlier. What makes them, I guess, the exception to rule? Like, I've always, you hear when anytime it talks about markets or economies, Florida is like this strange outlier where whatever the country's doing is doing the opposite, whether it goes through COVID, economic policies, or like you said, marketing. Like, for specifically marketing, though, what do you think makes Florida unique? Well, I think what makes it unique in this situation is you had a lot of people during COVID that were just fleeing places like New York. Los Angeles because they were shut down and then going down to South Florida like exacerbating prices and a lot of it came from New York you had hedge fund money that's going down and just you know really just driving up the cost of real estate and so a lot of that's artificially inflated to begin with it's not you know I don't it's really if you if you increase um, at a normal pace which I'd say between six and ten percent a year which is even on the higher side ten percent that's a sustainable increase. But when you go to a place like Miami that went up like 150 or 200% in a year, that's not, that's not really sustainable. And so I think like when people start, when the economy starts to cool and like people, people are trying to get out of these properties, you're going to probably see some type of reduction in sales price. I paid 30 million for this house. Now I'm ready to sell it for 10. I mean, that's just, it, you know, it's just kind of not even real money at that point. It's almost like playing with Monopoly dollars, basically, where everyone's just passing it around like a hot potato. Yeah. But would you say like a smart move would be to buy property? Because I always hear people say the best investment you could ever make is investment in land. Is that always the case? Or would you recommend like, hey, look at other alternative, you know, media of um, like property or values or sales? I mean, it really just it depends on the person and the financial goal. Like, if I had $2 million in the stock market, it's going to yield you more than $2 million in buying a house, right? I mean, I think long-term, you're probably going to make more money on the stock market. Um, if you need, everyone needs a place to live, so I'd rather buy, i definitely say buy instead of renting. But if you have a, if your strategy is to invest in, like, I don't know, it's a great question. I mean, I, I if you're still, if you're if you're buying income generating properties, that's one thing too, right? If you're if you're, I definitely buy my primary residence, but if, if I, I I would want to sit down and kind of look if I have X amount of dollars to buy, you know, a rental property, do I want to? Is that a is it a better deal to do that than put it in the stock market? I think it's really going to come down to that person's that individual, what kind of life they want, what kind of lifestyle do they want to be married to this area long term? Do they want to be a property manager. Um, so it's not necessarily a shoe in to say, yes, everyone should buy like a bunch of, you know, rental properties and this is the, the strategy. But I do think buying your primary residence is definitely, definitely smart. Definitely. Makes a lot more sense. Hey, Z, you have any other questions you want to ask as well? I just want to add on to the whole um, subject matter of investments. Typically, if your job or any employment place has the ability to, like, if it has an investment, it has a retirement program, usually matching them on dollar um, amount is usually a really good avenue for long-term investments. So uh, they'll definitely match you on dollar amount, um, typically, as we speak on that. So if they do have that, I would definitely say that's, like, a good um 
guaranteed investment um, place to go to if you ever want to like if you're looking for long-term investments like house ownership is great um stock market exchange i think it needs a, a strong level of diligence and not to say that home ownership doesn't either but this is like a like one of the safest like um avenues you can go to in terms of investments i would say i mean historically classes always go up in price They're, i think it's a wonderful investment i mean it, it, it really is especially if you're gonna keep the it, the the house for you know a long time it typically always goes up in value so yeah home ownership is a, a wonderful way to well I was also wanted to ask you this this is a bit of a strange question that's off topic but you were mentioning Amazon earlier and how they're having their takeover and do you think by any stance like AI or other corporations could have like a large effect on the housing market. Because I've seen videos of people like using new materials to build houses with. It's like this form of like plastic where it's like almost they're 3D printing a house. And apparently it's a lot cheaper. How do you think that's going to like affect the market at all? Um, I, I don't know about building. I can definitely see how like maybe some like contracts could be outsourced and like some of the closing stuff. I think people are always going to want like the human touch when it comes to to their house and when it comes to like negotiating the house buying the house um i think that people are are going to want to the human approach but i think probably like smaller elements of it could definitely be outsourced with ai i don't, I don't know about like the building materials or anything like that I, I really don't have any insight on yeah i've noticed um in terms of houses that are basically they can be erected like within one day and they're like pretty standard in terms of the mass like production but Certain houses have unique eccentricities that can't be replicated with those type of houses, and you kind of have to forego a lot of like alterations if you want to like um like that 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 cannot be sustained by these houses, especially due to stability as well. Like due to the ability to set them up in basically anywhere, you kind of lose a guaranteed level of stability and fortitude with these level of houses. So while yeah, I can see that, but I don't think um. In terms of um, um, AI and how it's been ubiquitously discussed and talked about, I don't think there's levels of advancement to really warrant like concern as of now. And even then, I think um, most agents are probably uh, they're still going to look for agents and still having that like sort of connection to like people rather than like an automated system that doesn't really feel like a tangible thing that you can hold accountable for whatever is going on in the housing market as of right now. Um, one of the things that, um, I thought worthy, uh, I thought it was worthy to ask, um, in terms of, uh, in terms of, um, um, just your company, is it just like a solo, is it like solely working? I'm trying to figure out the proper way to phrase this. Are you, do you ever have people on your wing in your company? Are you usually providing any tutelage? Are you educating anybody within your field, or is it just usually um, it's a collaborative um, process where you're just figuring out um, what sort of um, property should be sold, or is it is that, yeah, is that does ever occur? Are you taking um, are you taking any apprentices or pupils right now? Because I may be interested in moving to DC. So. <laughs> 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 um, not at this very moment, but that does not mean it won't change in the future. Sounds good. Sounds good. And for the housing market, um, you you mentioned it earlier how there's sometimes in places a lot. 
What would be your best advice for first-time home buyers? Do it. Buy it now. Get in now before if the prices are not coming down. They keep. They're still steadily going up. There's never a better time to buy than now. Just re 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 uh, find the house, refine the interest rate when they come back down. But interest rate is probably going to keep going up for the next year or two. House prices are unfortunately still probably going to keep going up. So it's only the longer you wait, the more you're going to price yourself out of the market. All right, sounds good. Hey, Z, you want to say anything as well? Hey, hey, Z, are you there? I am. Sorry, this is this is just an internet connection problem. But no, I think this has been um, very insightful for me. Um, I, I I've had my banquet of questions answered, and um, I appreciate all the insight that's been provided by our guests so far. So I, I I've had my my knowledge questions for the most part. Um, in terms of like the questions that come up to me immediately when it comes to um, real estate. Yeah, definitely. I'd say this has been a very enjoyable podcast episode, and I'm very glad again and thankful to have you on our show and have you as a guest to give us good insights. Yeah, thank you. I've really enjoyed being here and talking with you both. Would you have any closing advice or any comments you want to have for the audience or people listening in? Like, I know earlier at the beginning you said that you um, have, like, mainly contacting people. But is there any other references someone could find you at for business relations? Uh, sure. My Instagram is Kyle, Kyle J. Meeks. So feel free to reach out there and uh, happy to answer any questions or help out in any way. All right. Sounds good. Hazy, do you have any closing remarks as well? No, that's everything for me. I'm Hazy Dalex, and you've seen us all in HD. And I'll leave it off to Solar Workroom to close us off of the episode. Yes, thank you again for both Kyle Meeks for being here and for Hazy Dialects as always being my co-host, Help Me Out. This has been Requiem Radio, and this is Solar Requiem signing out. Thank you, and see you next time.